Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Network's Dr. Christopher Hall Show. And I'm excited to welcome to the program, Dr. Hall. Uh, Dr. Christopher Hall, how are you? And we have an amazing guest. I'm a huge fan of this guy, uh, especially the one show. I think of him, he's synonymous for this show, but he's done so many amazing things. And we're going to have another great guest. But again, we're again dealing with uh, Corona Geddon. Uh, and what we've dealt with in the last week, Dr. Hall, talking back and forth, it's crazy, isn't it? Uh, no doubt, no doubt. And, and again, I'm very excited about our guest today. Um, certainly, uh, um, and a better in action with a very impressive uh, resume. So, All right, so let's introduce our guest. Well, no doubt. Um, What's well, my pleasure uh, to introduce um, a, a veteran actor of, of film and TV, um, seen in um, films such as Con Air, uh, Vietnam, um, White Men Can't Jump, and multiple TV shows, uh, Smart Guy. Without further ado, um, I'd like to uh, introduce a esteemed member of the Cap Alpha Psi fraternity, Mr. John J. Marshall. Welcome to the show, John. Hey, thank you very much. Thank you very much. How are you guys doing today? How are you holding up? We're, we're holding up fine. And you know what? I And we'll talk about the corona maybe in this interview. I'm sure we will. But guess what? I forgot you were in White Man Can't Jump. One of my oh, yeah. favorite films of all time because I'm six foot ten and I you know, any basketball player at that time, that was the movie. It was totally the movie. And I completely forgot that you were in it, you know, and I'm sure people have said that before, right? When they look at your resume and say, really, were you in that movie? And it's, it, and it, again, it was just one of those films that, uh, it's, it's just synonymous thinking of the, the guest, but I forgot, but now I remember completely, John. Yeah, it was uh, it was an iconic film for the time, and uh, ironically, I lived about a mile from the location that we were shooting at on Venice Beach, so I could get up in the morning, ride my bike to work, and for about 10 days, I got to lay my head on this beautiful woman's lap all day and get paid for it. There was no better job in the world. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Yeah. And I remember that and you were pretty, you were, you were the schemer in that, in that, on that show. And again, everyone was, everyone was trying to manipulate in some way to win games. And that's what it was playing street ball. And I don't think the kids today understand playing on the playgrounds like we do, John, do they? No, I, I don't think that the, uh, the kids today have the benefit of personal interaction that we did because their worlds are, are uh, they interact digitally and have friends that they've never met. Um, and our world was different. You had to get out there and you had to deal with people and it, it wasn't always easy and it wasn't always pretty, but you had to figure out your way in and out of situations. So, um, so I think things have definitely changed dramatically over the last 20 years. And these kids got to get tough playing street ball like we did when, you know, a foul is not a foul. Trust me, we, you go on the courts. So <laughs> I remember those days. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> All right, Dr. Hall, first question for John. I sure, no problem. 
So, so John, um, you know, tell us a little bit about kind of like uh, where you're from and how you got involved in acting. Well, I grew up in Detroit uh, in the 60s and 70s. And Detroit was a car town where acting was not really an option. Acting was something that you did after work. And, um, and I just felt like this was something that uh, was going to be my life's passion. And so, uh, so I left and went to uh, Northwestern University, which was one of the top acting schools in the country at the time uh, and still is, and was fortunate enough to, uh, to get the mentorship of some really, really strong uh, professors. Um, and uh, then went from there to Second City Theater in Chicago and was again fortunate to be mentored by some of the uh, the great comedy minds of our uh, generation. And, um, and from there, booked a film one day. Uh, I was working at a telephone sales boiler room selling radio airtime. And uh, my manager looks over and says, hey, you, you got a call. <laughs> and so when we made a sale at the sales room, you would slam the phone down like it was a slam dunk. Then you'd jump up out of your booth and you'd say, oh, yeah. And the whole room would go, how much? And you'd say, 250. And then everybody would go, yeah. And then you'd run around the room and get a high five from everybody. And that was kind of our thing is how to make work fun. So I pick up the phone. My agent says, hey, you got a movie in L.A. It's 2 p.m. right now. Your flight leaves at 6. You got to get on the move. They want you to start tomorrow morning. So I slam the phone down. I say, oh, yeah. They said, how much? I said, I got a movie in L.A. I'm going to Hollywood. And everybody cheered. And I ran around and gave everybody a high five and ran out the door and um, came right to L.A. So that was, the, that was how I left Chicago. Wow. And from that experience of going and leaving to go to LA, did, you really had to get out of your comfort zone, right? Just decide you got this opportunity, one opportunity, and you said, I'm gone. I'm out of Detroit. I'm going to do this. Did you really well, think that from that experience of saying, I'm going to go and move to LA, that you would be as successful as you are today? Um, I never thought I wouldn't. Um, my parents who were, you know, working people in Detroit and had friends that were in the arts community had their friends calling me to make sure that I know that, you know, 90% of actors can't make a living. And the only thing that went through my mind when I heard that was, oh, okay, I got to be in the top 10%. So I focused all of my skills development on being the best at being able to audition and being able to get out there and get a job. So there was never a point where I thought that I wouldn't do well because I didn't think about it. I just went out and did it. Had I thought about it, I probably would have stayed in Chicago and, uh, and still been in that booth selling radio airtime. <laughs> wow. Because again, when we think about taking chances in life, um, if we listen to the people that tell us, no, you shouldn't do this, forget about it then you're going to kick yourself the rest of your life. There are people in better jobs and making more money than me, John, but I would never want to be in their position compared to what I do and love in all my jobs that I do as an entrepreneur, as a worker, 
as a producer. I just forget it. I mean, everyone's, well, wouldn't you want to be this person? I'd say that's boring. And that's what's so lucky that you have to have the job that you have, John. Well, I think that uh, people tend to think of life choices in terms of safety. You know, what's a good job, you make good money, you know, find something that'll, you know, pay you on a regular basis, that kind of uh, thing. Um, And my thought was always, and still continues to be, find something that you love and that you would do whether you were making any money doing it or not. And the money will follow. But the first thing you have to do is put yourself in position where every day you wake up and you say, I love my life. Yes. And then no matter how much money you have, if you love your life, you're going to be happy. And the end of all of this thing is that we have a system that basically tries to convince you that if you make the most money, you'll be the happiest. And it's totally untrue. The thing that's true is you have the ability to decide every day whether you're going to be happy or not. Yes. Just depending on how you set your life up. So for me, I have three priorities. Bills are paid, family's healthy, I'm healthy. And if I have those three things, those are my baseline. No matter what else is going on, I will allow myself to just be happy. That's great. And that's a great thing. And a lot of times finding the right people to surround yourself with that believe that is the best because ultimately there are a lot of people making a lot of money today that now are losing a lot of money because mm-hmm. we never thought that we'd go through Corona again. That's what I'm going to call it now. And that mm-hmm. how the stock market crash and maybe a possible recession. And we don't know how many people are going to lose their jobs. Pick something that you love and that you're willing to struggle even if the hard times hit and still be able to do it. And that's where lots of people that have chosen professions that have uh, their love, they're always people going to be wanting that stuff compared to the ones where chase the money, the money could disappear. And don't you agree, Dr. Hall? Yeah, uh, no doubt. I, I definitely agree. And uh, uh, what I would say to, to John was, I mean, he's certainly in a long line of, of great actors, uh, uh, from a great school. And, and in fact, I remember those winners myself there. I'm an alumni of Northwestern myself there, John. So oh. a great line of actors, Charleston Heston, and we've got what Megan Marco and, uh, uh, and, and, um, and so a great school for acting. But, um, well, John, tell us a little bit about, um, again, there's a lot of young people out there listening to the show who are interested in, in, in going to acting and, and certainly we know that, uh, again, making it Hollywood is not very easy. Um, are there any points that you could enumerate for these young people who might be interested in going to sort of acting and making it in a tough place of Hollywood? Um, what I would say to anybody who, um, who wants to enter the arts um, as a profession is figure out, um, first off, how are you actually going to, who's actually making money doing this? Because in Hollywood, you see the stars, uh, but they're like less than 1% of all of the people who have jobs in Hollywood on some level or another. And uh, I've been a kind of career uh, character actor 
over time, which means I never became a big star, but I've made a tremendous living being able to, uh, to come in and play the roles that support the big star along the way. Um, so I would say the number one thing is to assess the business for what it is and understand that there are certain uh, roles that show up over and over in every movie or TV show. So for instance, right now, uh, I moved into the role of authority figure. So if you think about Beverly Hills Cop, Eddie Murphy's running around and he's the one you think about first. Right. But the authority figure was the guy who said, Foley, get your ass in here right now. Yeah. How the hell are you going to run out? Everybody remembers that guy. Yes. Right? Because that character is in everything because the leading man has to have that character to guide him of, uh, of going in the wrong direction so that he can correct course and learn the lesson that makes us love him by the end of the piece. So in every piece, there are these different kind of uh, archetypes um, that, that land in almost every piece. So if you can figure out which of those archetypes you fit into and play that. Just keep going out and doing that. Look for every audition where you can do that and create a lane for yourself where you can work over and over. If you get lifted out of that lane, that's great. But if you can figure out what that lane is and play that lane, um, you can make a very good living over time. You and that's a great point you make figuring out what you're to cast yourself in. So let's talk about Smart Guy. It's the one I remember you the most from. I was a huge mm -hmm. fan of the show uh, growing up. And uh, tell us how you got that job. Well, when I came to Hollywood, um, I came not just to become famous, but at the time that I was training as an actor the roles that were predominant for African-American men were all kind of negative. It was pimps and pushers and yep. drug dealers and thugs. And, and it was, those were the archetypes that were being repeated over and over. And, um, and I also realized that, that um, entertainment is like America's number three export. So not only were those roles being repeated, but they were being exported around the world to people who think that when they see TV, that's what America is. So those were the representations of African-Americans all over the world. And I made a decision that, uh, that I wasn't going to do that and that I would come and create a counter narrative to those roles by the roles that I took. So for 10 years or so, I turned down a lot of those roles oh, gosh. and tried to play only the positive stuff. And okay. finally, smart guy came along <laughs> and smart guy was everything that I wanted. And in the end of it, um, it ended up being exported to 175 countries and became the, uh, the image of African-American male genius of stable African-American families, of loving families, exported all around the world. Now, uh, to show you how that works, a couple of years ago, I went to the Cannes Film Festival, and 
the uh, the young uh, African descendant um, French guys, when they saw me, they treated me like I was Denzel Washington. Wow. Because that show had a profound effect on their upbringing. So uh, the things that we do in Hollywood matter. They go all around the world. And I choose to do things that uplift people. And that's a great point. Think about like how the nanny was out everywhere, all over the world, your show the same way, meaning your character, and then people see you over and over again. And that's, that's tremendous. And that's something that I, I, I look at in so many ways. We remember you so much because of constant replaying of your show constantly. But again, the stableness of that show of the family showing how, uh, remember how they were portraying things, Robert Townsend and Robert brought up when I got to interview Robert about how you talked about those roles for African-Americans at the time when you started, they were only mm-hmm. negative type of roles. And Robert Townsend broke the barrier trying to create films himself and change yes, and change the, and I was honored to get the chance to talk to him. That's the, but I remember that story and, and that's great. And that's great to see where African-Americans are going with one of the highest producing, I guess, highest, paid actors in The Rock, who I know from the days when I would wrestle with him, uh, to today, it's, 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 a hap- it's, it's improving, it's getting better, but still we need to look at better roles for African-Americans, especially more Academy Awards and things like that. So again, you're on yeah. the right track, but it's not there yet. Yeah, and, and we're in now um, what I perceive to be the new golden age of television. You know, with all these new uh, streaming services operating as networks and producing their own content. Um, there's more and more, there's more content now than ever. And, um, and I think, uh, out of that comes more opportunity to, uh, to create, uh, uh, alternate narratives to, uh, to the whole gangster, uh, kind of thing of the uh, of the '90s and the early 2000s. Absolutely. All right, Doctor Hall. Next question for for uh, John. Uh, no problem. No problem. So, John, tell me. Um, you know, I, I read a little bit about you, and so I know that you kind of, I guess you could say, you're you're you are the head of an acting family. Okay. I know your wife is a very, um, um, very. Um, I would say, um, known actress. Uh, so tell me what that's like living there. Um, I guess in, uh, in California, uh, in this acting family and, um, tell me what it's like when you go in public. I mean, well, what's it here's like? the, here's the interesting thing about that question. Um, in 1992, Vanessa Williams and I did a season of Melrose place where on the show we got married and kind of moved off. And then she went her direction and I went my direction, but it showed up on the internet that she and I are married. And I have tried for years to get that removed from the internet. And I can't freaking be successful about it. Oh, And the people, yeah, yeah. And the people who, there are companies that you would hire, but it costs like three to $5,000 to have them go out and scrub your name. Uh, scrub uh, things that really? are true about you on the internet. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, and Vanessa and I laugh about it now because we both tried to get it removed. Now, don't get me wrong. We're friends. And she was married to a fraternity brother of mine, Andre Wiseman. They have a couple of really wonderful, talented kids who are also getting into the acting thing. But uh, she and I were never married in real life, only on TV. Well, Mel Hollywood marriage. <laughs> so, so Mel place. I would. So that's an interesting story. How many times you ask that question when people do research and think that you were? Well, let me tell you something. I have uh, met women who I started to have a conversation with, who went home and googled me, and came back and said, "I can't talk to you. You married." <laughs> it was like, what? Is this just on Wikipedia? Where's it on? Well, um. Once it starts on Wiki, then other websites all over just come to Wiki to get your bio and put it up. So yeah, pretty once much. that happened, it was out there. And I've gone and I've changed it on Wikipedia. And then I come back a month later and it's been changed back. So uh. somebody is actually invested in making sure that this narrative continues to be what it is. And, and I'm not going to you know, spend a house note trying to get it taken down. Oh, that makes sense. But, oh, my gosh, if there's any way I can figure it out talking to my people, I'll reach out to you. I have your number now and help you because I have a digital marketing company, and I'd be willing to help you in any way if there's possibility. So I'll look into it. Oh, listen, I would yeah, well, that, that's that a, help yesterday. Huh. I mean, yeah. but it's well, that's a tricky thing, tricky thing of the Internet. Yeah, so yeah. based on that question and a follow-up question, so you're not married to Vanessa Williams, which I see Dr. Hall does great research because I had no idea about either thing. So I'm listening to him saying, man, I didn't see that. But again, I, 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 I think it is smart guy well, and, and, and your newest he, projects. But tell us your family well, life. Yeah, family. You, yeah. yeah. Um, family and I, I've never been married because I was always kind of, you know, married to acting in uh in that sense so always you know flying around the world and and you know never in a position to create that kind of stability for somebody mm -hmm. and um you know part of relationships and building successful relationships is that uh you either have to be focused on the relationship or you have to get in a relationship with somebody who doesn't mind that you're not focused on the relationship. Exactly. And, uh, and that is trickier than you would think. Um, but I do have a son who just had a daughter. So I'm a grandfather now. Oh my. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful little girl. And, uh, and my son, you know, for all the things that I didn't know as a single dad, because while I was doing Smart Guy, I was also uh, a single father oh, wow. with, uh, with a son about the same age. Um, and for all the things that I didn't know being a father so young, my son has come out to be a really terrific person. And when I describe him, I tell people, if you had a daughter, my son is the guy you'd want your daughter to meet. Ah, that's, that's tremendous. And again, I'm sure you learned a lot of that process from being on the show, smart guy, even though you were learning to be a father, you were doing the research 
to become a better father from the storylines and utilizing that. And fatherhood is such a underrated thing. It's important to have fathers in our lives. And our guest, our our host, Dr. Hall, was a ward of the state and really didn't have a father, Dr. Hall. But you were able to overcome. But many young people today, Dr. Hall, aren't able to without a without a father, right, Dr. Hall? Yeah, and that's very true. Yeah, I mean, a father figure uh, is very important. Um, and um, but um, well, all that you know, uh, social media and Wikipedia and, and the Urban Dictionary and this kind of stuff that uh, maybe all um, smoke in the air. Uh, but what is not is what actually John has been doing in his fraternity. And what they're doing to get young African American men into college. So, John, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, I'm the national spokesperson for Kappa League um, slash Guide Right, which is the oldest and most successful African American male mentorship program in U.S. history. That's it was founded in 1922. We will be 100 years old in 2022. And this is uh, a program that was developed by Cap Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated, of which I am a member. Now, what we do is we essentially create mentorship opportunities for, uh, for young men at risk uh, living in urban areas. Many of them do not have fathers at home. And, um, and so they need the input of men to learn what the, the priorities and the behaviors of successful men are about. So part of what we've done recently is we have created a partnership with the Black College Expo. And the Black College Expo has been around for 20 years. It travels around the country to 12 different cities and brings the historically Black college experience to those cities so that young people can uh, come in and get information and one of the things that we discovered is for many of these colleges if you have a 2.25 2.5 or higher and an 18 act they will uh, accept a young man right on the spot uh, to come to those colleges so we've created a partnership with the black college expo where we bring the young men in our mentorship program all around the country to the black college expo we prepare them to get their transcripts and their ACT scores or the SAT scores together so they have them with them. And we walk them in and get them into college that day. And uh, there's a YouTube video up on kappaleague.tv um, that describes and shows the process of how we do that. And anybody who is listening to your show uh, who would be interested in getting their son into Kappa League and into this um, environment where we are all focused on getting young men into college can reach us at TV at gmail.com. So K-A-P-P-A-L-E-A-G-U-E-T-V at gmail.com. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, great. Uh, what a great awesome. thing. And let's talk about your latest project while you're on the show. John, thank you for your patience today uh, to do the show, especially during the coronavirus uh, again, but we have to find ways to keep busy in these times when we don't have sports anymore. I mean, I know right. John, this has got to be hard. I mean, on so many sports fans, right? No sports at all. Uh, certain shows aren't 
coming on now. It's, you know, where's our entertainment coming? And it's from you guys and release their streaming service and stuff to keep us entertained through these tough times. But tell us about your latest project. Well, the latest project is called Paradise Lost. Um, it comes out on Spectrum uh, TV April 13th, and then we'll play later another first run on the Pop Network. So it's a partnership between Paramount and Spectrum. And uh, it stars Josh Hartnett and Nick Nolte. And wow. it is a, uh, a mystery drama set in a small southern town where years earlier, uh, probably 15 years earlier, uh, there was a big fire that killed a bunch of people. Um, and now it's years later and the town is still reeling from the secret of the fire, of what actually happened and who actually said it. And um, uh, Nick Nolte is kind of this old Southern um, newspaper owner who's a very powerful guy. And, but he has a scandal happen, so he calls his wayward son, Josh Hartnett, who works in the newspaper business in California, to come back and help him straighten things out. But his plan is to set it up so that uh, Josh can never leave town. Um, and in that, there is someone who was accused of setting the fire, the, police, the fire chief at that time, um, Ronnie Pearson was accused of setting the fire and was sent to jail. And he's been in jail for 15 years for a crime that he didn't commit. Oh my. And now his niece, who was 10 years old at the time, is now a college graduate investigative journalist and has decided that she's going to take it on to get her Uncle Ronnie out of jail. And I play Uncle Ronnie. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, that's a really great story, an interesting story, and it's it's um, what that'll air first. Um, where will it be available first in April, online or? Uh, it's going oh, to be available on Spectrum TV. Spectrum TV, okay. All yeah. right, and and then probably some streaming service will pick it up after it goes through Paramount and everything, right? Different seasons. Yeah, then, yeah. Well, then there's the Paramount Network, which uh, which is on cable now. And so that's where they have shows like, I think, Yellowstone with Kevin Costner yes. and 68 Whiskey is a new show, like a modern day mash. And then this will go over to Paramount Network after that. That's great. And how about working with Nick Nolte? That's got to be unbelievable. Yeah. Well, it, you know, anytime that you can be in the presence of somebody um, who has done this for as long and as high a level as Nick Nolte, uh, you know, all you want to do is just soak it in. Yeah, for sure. That's a good way to answer it for sure. All right, Dr. Hall, summarize John for me. Well, no problem. Well, there we have it. From the um, Motor City, Detroit, Michigan, to the star-studded, capital of what is known as Hollywood, are a veteran actor, an individual who has shown longevity over time, who's been, who's laid out uh, some great points for our young people, uh, a member of a very esteemed fraternity, the Kappa Alpha Psi fraternity, um, and um, 
who continues uh, to be a great actor, a superstar. And so we really appreciate you coming on the show today, John. Thank you very much. Absolutely, guys. And thank you for having me here. And um, you guys stay safe out there right now. And I would would encourage everybody um, to look up an article uh, on WebMD entitled, uh, Can the Flu Virus Be Killed by Ultraviolet Light? Okay. Um, One of the things that is not coming forward in terms of information is that um, this virus can be killed in the environment. And there's a certain kind of light called far UVC. So it's a, a narrow spectrum ultraviolet light that won't hurt your eyes and it won't hurt your skin, but it does eradicate viruses. Um, and why this has not come into the media, I don't know, but the initial study was done by Columbia University in 2018. So it's not something that's an unknown. It's something that's been vetted by one of the greatest academic uh, institutions in the United States. And, awesome. uh, and those bulbs, those far UVC bulbs, are actually pretty available. Like you can put in, you know, far UVC light bulb and you put it in a, uh, to a Google search and it comes up on Amazon. There's a bunch of places where you can get them. And, uh, and I think that the application of that would be to put it at wherever the common entryway is of your home so that as you come in and out or if you have family members or uh, you know, a lady that comes in and out, you come in and you spend some time just bathing in this ultraviolet light and any of the virus that's on you environmentally will be killed. Wow. And so it's, it's one of the things that we can do. And again, the study was done by Columbia University you can look it up on Google. It's not a secret. It's not something that um, that is one of the things that are that people are making up. Like you know, eat a jar of peanut butter every two hours, and the virus will go away. It's not. <laughs> it's not that. Well, um, yeah. So, uh, and I think one of the things that's really important to understand is that this is the SARS-CoV virus which leads to an illness called COVID-19. And this whole coronavirus thing, I mean, it's, it's a brand new name, but this is actually uh, something that is a relative of the SARS virus that we saw years ago. And so Incredible. <laughs> there are ways to deal with the virus that they already know about. The virus yeah, yeah. Uh, right. uh, dies at, 56 degrees Celsius, which is 133 degrees Fahrenheit. Right. So how do you create a 133 degree Fahrenheit environment that a person can be in? Exactly. One is called a sauna, which we know goes from 150 to 185, 190 degrees, and we sit in them all the time. Right. So as you breathe in that hot air, it affects the virus. How do we know? Well, anecdotally, I don't know about you guys, but my father, when he caught a cold, would steam a pot of water and then take a towel and put the towel over his head and breathe in that hot steam. And that would affect the cold virus. That was what the old people used to do. Yeah. Well, we know that water boils (laughs) at 180 degrees. 
So, so yeah, great person yeah, to so, tell that to. Uh, I think you guys have so much in common, John and Dr. Hall, that you guys have to kind of stay in touch and connect, especially I know that Dr. Christopher Hall wants at point to have a foundation. Well, I'm sure he's going to want to help what you're doing uh, with young people today as well. And I think you guys could have a good connection with each other and especially with the whole push to hopefully end this virus in certain ways. Dr. Hall, you've been doing a lot of research as well because you're going on different programs. Isn't that correct? That's correct. And, and actually I just talked about what, um, what John just spoke about, just what he just said, you know, last night I was on a program where I just talked about coronavirus. And so it's just incredible. It's just incredible. Wow. Oh, well, so yeah, there's a lot and Northwestern grads together. I think you guys need to connect for sure. So I'll make sure I set, I give each other's contact information so you guys can stay in touch. Yeah, if you would, please, that'd be great. Awesome. All right. Well, well great. Thanks, thanks for going John. on. Let's hope again, that's the concern I have is I talk to people like Dr. Hall, um, John, and they tell me that in Alabama, there's not as much of the virus going on as what we're dealing with being locked down in Pittsburgh and LA. Uh, and right. that's just kind of concerning is that we don't know if we're doing too much or too little and we need to figure out a way to stop this so that we're not going to be that in two months out, we're done, not six months or a year. Yeah. Well, and one of the thing is that, um, what we do know is that the effective ways of eradicating the virus are not being deployed or discussed right now. So for instance, uh, an overhead ultraviolet blue light could be deployed in the same way that those heat lamps are at the bus stops in Pittsburgh. And if you think about places where people are, to, for the society to function, people need to be going in and out of, like hospitals where viruses and bacteria spread all around, and yet here's something that is very effective uh, and cost-effective at killing the viruses rather than trying to wipe down all these surfaces. If you deploy these lights in these different places, that would be something that could eradicate the virus. Or government buildings where people are going in and out and we need for government to function, that it would make sense to have these overhead ultraviolet blue lights that people can come and stand in so they're not bringing the virus in and out of those buildings. And other public spaces, you know, the uh, the kitchen at the restaurants, if we're not going to be able to go into the restaurant, the restaurant workers are still at risk. But if you have these lights in the kitchen, then it's going to kill the virus while the people are coming in and out. And the light doesn't have to go off when you leave. And it could be automatically turned on before you come in. So any residual virus could be killed before the workers get in there. So if we put some thought into this, we could uh, set ourselves up not only to deal with this, but future viruses um, could be addressed yes. by setting ourselves up with things that are basically prophylactic um, and will protect us against the viruses before they hit. Exactly. Well, well, you got to be going to the White House next, John, to talk about that. And who knows, <laughs> who knows what, what happens. Because uh, get the word out and we allow the platform like this to do that. And I think that you and Dr. Hall will connect and help, help people. And that's the important thing. You guys are doing tremendous work and you're truly passionate people caring about others. So I appreciate you both 
having this conversation today and take care guys. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Take care guys. Thank you. Yeah, all, right. all right. Bye-bye. All right. All right, that was Dr. Christopher Walsh, everyone.